Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that investigates matters to do with motoring and transport. I'm David Brown. And in this program, we look at news stories, including Fiat Chrysler to build autonomous cars for Google. We talk with Professor Stephen Greaves from Sydney University about how transport planners are getting an understanding of the sort of trips that we all make. We road test the Subaru Forester, and in our panel discussion with Brian Smith and Errol Smith, we take a light-hearted look at stories, including driverless cars will need driving tests, according to one safety group. And of course, that leads us to consider what will the motoring road test of the future be like. Have a question or a comment, send it to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. You can hear longer versions of the interview, road test and quirky news by going to drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program from iTunes or your favourite podcast service. Now to start the program, let's have the news. Car companies, tech giants and ride-sharing organisations are coming together to push the cause of self-driving cars and to build products for the market. Ford, Google, Uber and two other companies are forming a coalition called Self-Driving Coalition for Safer Streets to push for federal action to help speed self-driving cars to market. What they are lobbying for is clear rules so they can work on what needs to be done with autonomous vehicles. Volvo, now owned by a Chinese company, and Uber's competitor Lyft are also part of the coalition. Meanwhile, Google and Fiat Chrysler have confirmed a partnership in the area of autonomous cars. Google's autonomous car technology, which includes various sensors and complex software systems, will be integrated into about 100 Chrysler Pacifica minivans, which will then join Google's existing fleet of autonomous vehicles. The European Commission is pushing local authorities to digitise cities and make them more efficient. One radical plan bubbling up could minimise the number of cars on city streets. Eurocities, an organisation representing cities in the EU, is pressing for local authorities to make transport data public and to use it to make traffic run more smoothly. And a project slated to start later this year in Finland could create an app that would help Helsinki residents map out routes using multiple modes of transport, including walking, public transport, taxis, and bicycle and car sharing schemes. The app will also sell flat-rate subscriptions so that people can travel in the city with whatever combination of transport means they choose, and only pay once. The CEO of the New Mobility as a Service, or MASS, app, calls the idea a kind of Netflix for transport, and says it could provide a true alternative to owning a car. Electric mobility scooters are becoming more and more common, but the e-fold-eye adds an extra element of practicality. When not in use, it can be folded into a carry-on, suitcase-sized package and wheeled along or stowed away. It can also be folded into a seat for those long waits at busy airports and stations. The scooter will come with two battery types, for regular travellers, there is a 1.1 kilogram air safe battery which is allowed on most airlines. During tests, it averaged 6 to 10 kilometres on a full charge, which takes about an hour and a half. The larger Far Reach battery weighs 2.7 kilograms and can cover 20 to 30 kilometres on a full charge, depending on the weight of the user, road surface, and gradient. In the UK, the huge increase in online shopping has led to a significant increase in vans on the road system. 
There are now more than 4 million vans on Britain's roads. The Society of Motor Manufacturers and Traders said demand for new vans is at record levels, with more than 370,000 vehicles registered in 2015. The significance of online shopping is that it generates home delivery. Last month, the Transport Department published its Road Use Statistics Report, which showed that van traffic has increased by 38% since 2000. The report said likely causes include the changes to taxation rules as well as the increase in internet shopping and home deliveries. A HEPA, or High Efficiency Particulate Arrestance Air Filter, is a high-quality filter. To qualify as HEPA by US government standards, an air filter must remove 99.97 of particles that have a size of 0.3 of a micron. A micron is one millionth of a metre. They are particularly used in medical and military applications. Better filtering systems have been available for your motor car as an aftermarket product, but now Tesla says they have developed a HEPA system for their Model X. Tesla says its HEPA filter was inspired by the kind used in hospitals and in aerospace applications, and that the system is hundreds of times more effective than standard cabin filters. However, no matter what filter you may have, many people do not clean them out, thus reducing their effect. The Land Rover Defender was an icon in British vehicle manufacturing, but the design focused on toughness and off-road capability rather than comfort. When Overdrive tested one several years ago, we felt that no one who understood the word ergonomics had been involved in the design. Time eventually caught up with its basic design, and Land Rover has now ceased production of the iconic vehicle. Whether it is for spare parts or a desire to have this now unattainable vehicle, theft rates have recently gone up significantly. According to UK rural insurer NFU Mutual, the figure has soared 75% since the end of production in January. Bentley now make an SUV, the Bentayga, but don't think it is a tough and tumble vehicle. It has all the luxury you would expect in a Bentley. And passengers can now control a selection of in-car systems from their Apple Watch, thanks to a new app developed by the company. The technology enables those being driven to remotely control the onboard climate and entertainment systems, adjust the heating, ventilation and even massage functions of their seats. And in real time they can monitor information such as vehicle speed, distance travel and outside temperature. Apple Watch wearers simply synchronise with the vehicle's touchscreen remote. And that has been the news. We continue a series of interviews that were prompted by the New South Wales Future of Transport Forum. Technology is seen as having a huge impact on serving our future needs. But this is not just the hardware of autonomous cars, for example. Technology will add to the ways we can understand people's needs as much as how much we might serve those needs. A few weeks ago, we spoke to Liz Ampt about how, in the 80s, she established an ongoing survey in New South Wales that identified a wide range of personal transport activities and how she became an expert, particularly in designing these types of surveys. The accuracy of the information is obviously critical, and this is where technology is also adding value. 
Dr Stephen Greaves is a Professor in Transport Management at Sydney University Business School and Director of the Business School's Doctoral Studies Program. Stephen's current research is focused around the health, environment and safety impacts of transport, active travel including cycling and innovative travel data collection methods using the latest technologies. Stephen did some work on apps that allow us to record information as quickly and as easily as possible. I asked Stephen about the improvements that new technologies have made in collecting personal data. The traditional way is to rely on people to either write stuff down or play it back to you when you call them up, you know, and you're asking someone to remember what they did yesterday or the day before, and people can't generally remember what they did an hour ago. It's... um, People have notoriously bad memories when it comes to travel, and they particularly have bad memories of places they don't go very often. So people generally can remember, you know, where they work and where the kid goes to school and where they live. But beyond that, people are are not able to provide information with the level of accuracy that we need for for policy and decision-making. And so the apps, the the real power is the um, functionality of, phones with the with the GPS device that automatically collects where you're going and then you can either ask people well what were you doing we you know we can see from the GPS you were here do you mind telling us what you were doing or it can be taken even further than that and we we're, we're almost at the point where we can intelligently guess what people were doing and, and so it it's removing the need to rely on people's memory there's been some research about getting people to be more active traveling, walking and cycling, and by collecting the data, they become much more involved in it, a bit like your Fitbit on your on your wrist, yes. but also that maybe doing it as a community where a local community puts aggregates its information and says, as a community, we've walked 10,000 kilometers more than we ever had over the last year. Yeah, no, no I mean, that's an interesting idea, and I mean, they've use this idea of um, you know these apps which you're you're in a sort of a group and you're actually almost competing with other people in that group you know through Facebook and things you can share it and then it will give you a tracker of how you're going not just against yourself but against your peers what you're talking about is a more I guess flipping it around a bit is more around where everyone kind of pulling together competition or pulling together I, you know, I don't really care as long yeah. as it's giving people an incentive and involvement to move in a more effective area. Yeah, no, no, that's a good, that's a good idea. I mean, that's, that's another use of an app. The thing about it is it can give longitudinal studies as well, doesn't it, how people change over time? Well, that's what we did in that both the papers I sent to you, they, they were both set up to track people over a ter- period of time following some change in the system. The first study was the motorist one where we... The intervention was a pricing mechanism and to see whether they would speed less and do other other ba- bad things on the road less if we attached a, num- a, a dollar amount to it. And then the second one, which is the one we just finished on the cycling, was we tracked people over about two or three years following some of you know, the City of Sydney cycleway program that's gone in to see whether it changed their, their overall travel and whether it changed cycling. And we were talking there to Professor Stephen Greaves from Sydney University's Institute for Transport and Logistics Studies. If you would like to hear the full interview with Dr Greaves, 
you can go to our website at drivenmedia.com.au where we talk in more detail about his studies in what might happen if there is a cost on travelling at certain times of the day or exceeding speed limits, particularly in school zones. Overdrive. For more information and past programs, go to drivenmedia.com.au. In 1975, Subaru Australia launched its first four-wheel drive. It was a little 1.4-litre station wagon. A little later came things like the Brumbury in 1978. Now, I won't comment too much on those cars, other than to say Subaru cars have matured a lot since then. Subaru established a good reputation and a great brand loyalty. It then went for a while, in the last decade or so, without pushing ahead as much as perhaps its opposition. Perhaps the opposition were catching up. We've tested the Liberty sedan recently, but now we're looking at the Subaru Forester, back to a station wagon. In fact, in 1997, in August, that the first Forester, came into Australia. It was, of course, the original compact SUV. Well, the market has become a lot more competitive since then. Now, our mate Ian Crawford went to the launch of the new Forester, and I have driven one of the cars recently. Let's chat about what we found. Ian, thanks very much for your time. Always a pleasure, David. Now, these uh, new Subarus, I've got to say that medium-sized SUV is really quite a competitive market now, isn't it? Oh, yeah, there's so much stuff in there for people to, to choose from. And, uh, you know, you've got to be good to compete. And, and the Subaru uh, is, is good and does compete. You've got the Mazda CX-5, the Hyundai Tucson. That's doing very well. Just changed the name and moved up a model a bit, moved up a bit of a size from the old iX35. Nissan X-Trail, Toyota RAV4 used to lead the class. Now is probably around year-to-date about fourth or so, and then comes the Subaru Forester. So as you say, Ian, plenty of competition. I like the Forester. It's easy to use, easy to get in and out of. Yeah, I, it's, a ve- it's a very easy car to live with. Um, it's very comfortable. The interior is, uh, is pretty classy and very, um, very passenger-friendly. Subaru has done a lot of work on its interiors in recent years and, uh, you know, the dashboards used to be horrible and drab and grey and hard plastic in. And now, you know, really, I'm, I'm in a Liberty, top-spec Liberty at the moment and uh, really the interior is, is as good as anything out of Europe. Just, you know, it's, it, they're in that class. I like the Forester too. It's got good visibility around it. Again, it's a very easy-to-use car. Yeah, it is a very easy to use car. Depending on the model, you've got manual or auto to choose from. Their auto is, is, is a CVT. You know, in my view, Subaru does about the best CVTs around at the moment. Yeah, they did have a little bit of poor press a little while ago. Not poor, but uh, lukewarm press in that regard. I think the new version is better. Oh, there's no doubt about that. And, of course, it does come, as you say, with a diesel. Uh, do you need a diesel in one of those? Is it worthwhile uh, getting one, do you think? I'm a bit of a fan of diesels, I have to say. Um, you can get four variants in the Forester, two of which are manual, the 2-litre DL manual and 2-litre DL with the CVT, or you can get the DS either in auto or manual. Pricing for the for the Forester overall 
kicks off at 29,990 for the manual two-litre IL and goes all the way to 47,990 for the two-litre XT premium auto, which is, you know, one with the lot, of course. You'd want to be getting a fair amount for that. That's, a, you know, that's nearly $20,000 extra, isn't it? That's not quite double, but it's, it's getting up there in terms of a, a percentage increase over what the base model is. Most of the car brands do that these days. There's a hell of a spread between uh, entry level and top spec these days, and the top spec ones, uh, you know, virtually irrespective of brand, have got just about everything you can think of as, as standard, and that's what you pay for. Now, boot size, the capacity around the boot, uh, reasonable? Luggage space is uh, is up there with um, best in category pretty well. It's 422 litres with the seats, the rear seats occupied. Drop them flat, the seat backs flat, and you can get 1474 litres. There's also the usual um, other cubby holes for your odds and sods. There's a roof-mounted sunglasses holder, which I like. There's a, a deep bin beneath the front centre armrest. A deep glove box, uh, door pockets, map pockets, pockets behind the front seat, and there's a handy bin at the base of the centre stack. So, you know, there's plenty of places to put your odds and sods. And you can hear more of Ian's comments on the Subaru. The extended interview is found on our website at drivenmedia.com.au. You're listening to Overdrive. And we get to the end of the program again, the last segment, and it will be to talk about some unusual stories. And I am once again joined by Brian Smith. G'day, Brian. G'day, David. And Errol Smith. G'day, Errol. G'day, David. Now, this story from Land Rover, which they have an app that you install in this car and it shows up on the central touchscreen. You can also put little tags on things that you know that you always want to carry in the car, like your phone and your wallet. The device detects if those tags are there. If they're not, they warn the driver and tell them what to do. I don't know about you, gentlemen, but I uh, like the idea. I've always thought we ought to have this far more widely used to find car keys. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Well, well, that's the fundamental problem with this, David, because to use this system, you need to get into your car to activate it. And for that, you need your car keys... (laughs) So you need them at least once, don't you? <laughs> but thankfully, the, the, the app that they're using, which is called Tile, um, operates on your smartphone as well. So if you can find your phone, you can use the system to find your keys to allow you to get into the car to set it up. Mm. And, I, and I've seen uh, some people have actually attached one of these things to their phone. So if you can't find your phone, you can, but you do have your keys in your car, you get in the car and it can find the phone. <laughs> <laughs> It'll drive you there. If you can't find your keys and you can get in the car, it puts up a sign saying you haven't got your keys. It also puts up another sign saying security has failed. <laughs> I, I don't know how, how successful this is going to be. The, these are tiles, they're called. They're not very small. They're sort of about the size of a matchbox. Oh, good grief. The idea of sort of a thin matchbox. The idea of having one of those in your wallet which is something they suggest and attached to your phone and your and your keys and your you know your bag and all that stuff seems a, a little impractical to me and they're about twenty five dollars each. No, they're not cheap, are they? Um, and, and they use an interesting sort of crowdsourcing thing so that if your if your keys and things are close by, it will make a little noise and um, and sort of tell you. But uh, if it's far away, but it's close to someone else who has that 
smartphone app, then you can sort of trap it, track them by GPS. It's it's quite an amazing system of of making things smart. I mean, it's it's you you know you've got smart televisions now. Your cars are increasingly smart, and now we're all very connected. And uh, what worries me, of course, is who who is getting all the information and tracking what I'm doing with my keys. If you can't find your wallet, maybe someone else can. Well, look, I just go outside and I wave to the black helicopters and and they usually say, down the back of the couch. <laughs> Could you put a, a, a tile on your children just in case you've lost lose them? Like, as long as they're small enough to insert under the skin. <laughs> <laughs> or as an earring. Now, there's an idea, you know. Oh, okay. And look, a, a detectable earring. So not only know where the person is who's wearing the earring, but where the lost earring is as well. Now, let me say the, another story. Brussels-based independent think tank, it's called the European Transport Safety Council, they've warned that driverless cars will need to undergo driving tests to ensure that they meet national highway rules. We at Overdrive have thought of the need to test technology such as electronic stability controls. Everyone says a car has it now. But are they equal? Are they good? Do some work better than others? Do some increase safety? Do some make it marginal? So really, if we are going to test driverless cars, gentlemen, what sort of test do you think we might have? Well, David, uh, I think it, it has to flash its lights at oncoming traffic if, <laughs> if it's just past a speed trap. <laughs> I wonder if you can bribe the tester. Well, look, David, it's uh, connected with that. I mean, everyone at the moment is assuming that the driverless cars will be very democratic in the sense that they'll they'll obey the rules, they'll ne- negotiate amongst themselves for access and crossings and and um, you know passing and and uh, merging and things like that. Well, look, I think there's a real chance for systems to look for advantages over other systems. So you could have, you know, you might be able to, in a sense, bribe in inverted commas your smart car system to exceed the speed limit or to drive more aggressively than others or even to um, get priority on on roads like uh, driving a bus lane for a while so i like the idea of testing how effective these are there's got to be some kind of standard or algorithm that um, controls everything or that that they must fit within and i guess the system of how they detect and analyse other vehicle movements. Um, I'd like one test to be how do they perform when a, when a bicycle appears or a pedestrian. The idea of uh, bribing the tester in that, given that the tester is human, that might not necessarily be the case. Although you could do it if the car goes over the speed limit, it automatically transfers some money into his bank account. <laughs> you, know, you could link the systems together. Road rage, has it got to show that it can do that, give the finger salute? I agree with you about a cyclist. I wonder if, though, we might have a virtual reality test where at the moment you sit on a dynamometer and measure it, but that's a bit simplistic. What if it had a total test where it got signals about cars in front and in different lanes and it had to cope with it? In a virtual way. Mm. And you test how it's going. You could also test how realistic its uh, emission data and, uh, and fuel consumption data. <laughs> well, uh, the Toyota Prius is the first car to have undergone Europe's NCAP newest test of autonomous braking. 
is actually, for, particularly for pedestrians. Mm. So we are starting to get into that. But this raises the question, gentlemen, of what is the road test of the future going to be? Yes, when you're just an almost passive occupant. I, th- I think in the States, at the moment, California, I believe, is, is looking to mandate there would still be a driving wheel, a steering wheel, in, the, in an autonomous vehicle. So the role and, and, of... And, hope, and hopefully a brake. Yes, but the role of the passenger as to whether you are entirely passive and, a, and a, just a passenger or whether you're expected to take over in certain circumstances. And, and if the circumstances in which you are expected to take over are extreme, then, yeah, we might have to make sure that people are very skilled in making snap decisions when things are going horribly wrong. And that's what we should test. Yeah, that's just over to you. What? There was a book, I think it was called A Brief History of the Future, and it proposed that the humans will work on only two things in the future because robots will take over everything else. The two things they'll work on is insurance and distraction. Yeah. <laughs> and now that's perfectly what we might have to measure as a road tester in any new car. What's the insurance and how good is the distraction while it's driving along and I'm sitting there doing something. Well, that, that yeah. could be the measure of how safe the car is, David, is, is how expensive the insurance is. Well, I mean, the, the expectation is that uh, insurance claims and injuries will drop by incredible amounts. Human error is more than 95% of, of uh, crash reasons. So the yes. potential for massively reduced insurance cost is huge. Hence, insurance companies are very closely involved in autonomous vehicle development. But there's a a line in the story about the NCAP um, story, David, where it says, um, you know, uh, the the car would brake automatically to avoid a pedestrian crash. So right in there is, is I think, the the biggest, most interesting piece of information for cities is that the moment pedestrians are only stopped from doing whatever they want by the fact that they might get killed by a human driving a car. So if, if you've got a you know, electronic system, an automated system that will definitely not crash into you, then you know, everyone will just walk out into traffic all the time. And if you would like to hear Errol, Brian and I continue to carry on, there is the longer chat session, which is on our website at drivenmedia.com.au. And we talk about subjects such as the self-driving bike, an April Fool's Day joke that really might have some validity. Lego has made a working version of a Porsche. I don't think it looks all that good. And a woman is killed on a trestle bridge while looking for the goat man. A train story with a difference. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Errol Smith, Brian Smith, Stephen Greaves, Ian Crawford and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can listen to longer segments of the features, road tests and quirky news on our website at drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.